I'm here with uh, Brittany George. She is a member of the RCMP here in Vancouver, BC. For those people who don't know who the RCMP is, uh, it's it's kind of like a police officer here in Canada, uh, Royal Canadian Mountain Police. Uh, I'd love to get a, uh, a, a, a view on what she did before, if she wanted to do policing from her childhood, and what kind of, what was the upbringing to that. So it's an honor to have you here. Uh, first question would be, now the RCMP and police, uh, these are a bit two different things. What's the difference between them? What, what are some benefits of your job that you would have over a regular police officer? or vice versa. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is Canada's police force. Uh, so what that means is we police Canada at a federal, provincial, and municipal level. So as far as the federal level goes, we do a lot of um, stuff with the border, we do a lot of stuff with the Prime Minister, um, we spend a lot of time working on intelligence and projects that go sometimes over the border and sometimes internationally. Um, we also do things at a provincial level, so obviously each province in Canada is very different and we cater our policing to those provinces. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily be able to police British Columbia the same way you'd be able to police um, Ontario or Prince Edward Island or something like that. And then obviously we police at a municipal level, um, which is policing in Maple Ridge, um, in Red Deer, Alberta, in Saskatchewan, all of those types of things. So we really get to see the three levels of policing in Canada, mm -hmm. as opposed to if you're a part of a municipal police force, you only get to see the spectrum of that municipality. Um, there are opportunities where people get to take positions in some of our federal programs that are run by the RCMP, um, but those programs are obviously run by the RCMP because that is our policing jurisdiction of responsibility. I see. And are there any, uh, is there is there a different way of dealing with uh, criminals between the RCMP and uh, regular officers? I wouldn't think so. I mean, crime, crime is, is crime. Is there any training maybe that is different? You know what, and so for us, when so when we go off for training, um, every single RCMP officer in Canada mm -hmm. has been trained in the same place. We have all gone and spent six months in Regina, Saskatchewan. Oh. Uh, so we have, we're completely sequestered away, we go to this training environment, and we spend six months learning the fundamentals of policing. Uh, for example, if you were with New West or Vancouver, uh, you would go to the GIBC. Um, if you were a police officer in Regina, Saskatchewan, you would go to their training facility, mm -hmm. um, Ontario. Right? They have the OPP, so the Ontario Police Force. They have their own training facility. Um, so yes, there are, there are different training venues. However, as far as the RCMP goes, every single one of us goes to the same place. I see. I see. And could you walk us through that training, what you had to do? Yeah, it's it's fun. It is it, it's intense. Don't get me wrong, but it is fun. Um, so basically, what happens is you get the phone call. Hey, you're going to Regina, Saskatchewan. You're going to be in a troop. Uh, usually troops are consisted of between 15 and 32 people okay. uh, that come from all different backgrounds, right? They've been vetted out by the RCMP, they've decided that they wanted to become a police officer. Now you get everyone together and you go stay in kind of a dormitory setting um, at our training facility in Regina, Saskatchewan. Then from there, it's six months of learning policing as a whole. So you're learning defensive tactics, you're learning driving, you're learning firearms, and 
for quite a bit of it, you're learning your applied police sciences, which is all about learning the criminal code and the laws of Canada. Because mm -hmm. again, we police the whole country, so you're not just responsible for learning certain rules in British Columbia. You have to learn the rules of the country, like everywhere. Right. Right. Yeah. So it it does. It's an intense six months because you have so much to learn, and the best thing about being able to be in depot is that you're able to push people to their limits to see what they'll do in a controlled setting. Okay. So we push buttons, we check and see the stress that people can handle in a controlled environment. That way when we release them into these communities, we know how people are going to act because we've seen it in a controlled setting. How does learning the criminal code look like? Do you take a page and you have to learn everything word for word, or how does that look like? So essentially what they do is they go through uh, certain offenses that you'll see fairly regularly, like okay. theft or assault or um, theft of vehicle, and they break down those offenses and explain your authorities as a police officer to arrest someone with or without a warrant. And then they go through the key elements of those offenses that you have to be able to prove before you can charge someone with said offense. So it's not like saying, hey, I saw that guy over there get into that car and drive off with it. He stole that car. You need to arrest him. Well, no, there are certain things that we have to satisfy based on the criminal code before we can actually go and charge that person. We need to make sure that the person didn't have given permission to be in the vehicle. We need to make sure that someone actually saw this person get into the vehicle without permission. We need to satisfy identity. We need to make sure that this person, if and when we release them, that they're going to show up for court. We need to make sure all the evidence is collected. It's, it is a lot to condense into one offense, and we break those down over the course of six months. Okay. What is the application process to go to these training camps? So our application process has changed slightly um, okay. from what I went through. Uh, it took me about a year from start to finish to get through the application process. Oh, wow. Um, and it, and it, it does take a while just because there is so much to it, right? You want to make sure that the people that you're sending off to this training camp um, have good work history, that they have good intentions to become a police officer. You want to make sure that they're surrounding themselves around people who are good intended. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly don't want people who are in organized crime right. fields deciding, hey, we're going to go be a police officer just to tag along. Um, so, And there's also a physical side of it too, where we want to make sure that when people are coming through this training, that they're not going to get injured while they're there, because it, it is a physical course, right? Um, so we want to make sure that people have good vision, uh, we want to make sure that they're healthy and they're not experiencing any illnesses that would preclude them from a long, healthy career. Mm -hmm. Let's drop back to your childhood. Sure. And uh, you went through high school, I would I did. assume. Uh, what kind of courses did you take that might have helped you in the uh, policing direction? So I come from a very small town in Alberta. Um, wow. And we, re we really didn't have a lot of courses past your language arts, science, social, um, math. So really any extra courses, it's not, it's not that I didn't want to take them, we just didn't really have them. Um, so in high school, I mean, I, I barely graduated. I, I really wanted to spend more time working than being mm -hmm. at school. Um, and I think that certainly shaped how I am now where it, that work ethic is still 
obviously very much part of my job. I, I truly do wish I would have spent just a little bit more time trying to focus in high school because there's definitely some valuable skills that you learn in school and that would have paid off later on in life. Um, but I think what my school didn't have for courses was substituted by the teachers that were there. Um, I had a lot of teachers who had had worldly experiences, some who had done documentaries in uh, third world countries, who mm. really truly shaped my purpose as a human being and who I wanted to become. And I think that that was probably, in my case, more valuable than taking a course. Okay. To be able to have that experience and learn actually what is out there in the world, all of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and be able to apply that to who I wanted to be later on in life, um, as opposed to trying to take a course to tell me what I should be. So real life experiences would go over any course? For me, yes. For yeah, and, that, and that's just my own experience um, for when I was in school. Being able to listen to these teachers talk about tours that they did in the Congo and Africa and, and seeing how different the world actually is compared to being in a small town in the prairies right. um, really changed my perspective on life itself. And, and again, it shaped me to be to take a look at who I wanted to be a, as a person on this planet. Mm -hmm. uh, did you go to university? I did spend some time in college. Um, okay. I tried to take some courses just to buy time until I got into the RCMP. Um, so I, I certainly wouldn't say that it was time well spent because okay. my focus was elsewhere. What courses did you take? So I took early education development when I was in college and I was in that program for about nine months. Mm -hmm. And that program taught you nothing of usefulness? No, I wouldn't say it taught me nothing of usefulness. Again, my focus really was to get into the RCMP and I was having lived experiences at that time myself that, for me, provided more valuable experience than what I was doing in the classroom. Um, I, I was volunteering for the SPCA. I was volunteering for our local women's shelter. Um, I was an on-call sexual assault uh, victim volunteer. So if someone had been sexually assaulted, they would go to the hospital. I would get called out and provide them comfort while they went through those steps. So those experiences were so valuable and meant so much to me that I, I really was slacking off and not paying attention in college. Kind of similar to my experience in high school. I've seen many uh, strange videos on Twitter and all over the internet of uh, protesters disrespecting uh, the police. How can you manage and hold your temper on some of these protests or people screaming at you, yelling at you for minutes and minutes? You know what, it's hard. It really is hard and I think everyone has a voice and everyone gets to be treated with respect and I think in moments like that you want people to take a look at what they're doing and just see how disrespectful it is um, but at the end of the day you, you can't take it personally like mm -hmm. it's not it's not like they're personally attacking me Brittany the RCMP officer who's standing here um, they're they're attacking an idea which in that particular instance, people like me are stopping them from completing. Um, and it really is unfortunate. It's unfortunate that um, people get to that state where you can't have a respectful conversation with right. someone. Um, and one of the best things about Canada is you, you do have the right to protest. You have a right to voice your concerns if you feel like you're not being heard. And I think that comes at a two-way street where mm -hmm. 
you feel like you're not being heard, but you in turn then have to hear what people are saying. Um, and I think that's where people's tempers and stuff get so high up that they just can't take a step back and, and look at what you're going to accomplish with that. Is there any psychological techniques you used to manage this and keep your cool or any psychological tricks that they teach you in training? I think in training, the best thing that they really do is just try and make you understand that it's not, it's not a personal thing. Mm-hmm. You happen to be the police officer there on what they would consider or what someone else would consider on the worst day of their lives. And at the end of the day, the only time a police officer really is showing up to interact with someone is if something's gone wrong, right? We're there for the assault calls, we're there for the domestic violence fights, we're there for the protests or anything like that. We're not there because people want us there. We're there to try and keep the peace and we're there to try and make sure everyone's safe. So remembering your purpose, why are you actually there, was one of the big things that they taught us, is to remember why you're there. You're there to keep the peace and make sure people are safe. Everyone deserves to go home safely at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. And we are there to make sure that that happens. Um, and, and again, really making sure that we know deep down, and it's hard, trust me, it's hard, but to remember that it's not personal. I see. Uh, children's perception of police officer is not very accurate because the assumption is that all you guys do is catch bad guys and put them behind bars. I guarantee you there's a lot of paperwork that goes on with it. Could you speak more yes. about the paperwork and how much of your time goes to paperwork? Because paperwork's probably not as fun as being out, driving around, catching bad guys. <laughs> no, and you know what? I'm a canine cop, so I love catching bad guys. That is, like, primary goal number one for me. Um, but, yes, there for every bad guy you catch, there is a slew of paperwork. Um, at the end of the day, we police municipalities, we police provinces, and we police the country as a whole. So we are held accountable by the entire country, not just the citizens of Maple Ridge or the province of British Columbia or Canada as a whole. And part of that comes to documentation, right? The best way to be able to come back to these stakeholders and tell them and show them what we've done with our time is through paperwork. Um, so. In truth, usually an average general duty police officer spends at least two-thirds of their shift doing paperwork, right? Oh, wow. So if you, if you charge someone or if you're wanting to forward charges to Crown Council to review, that's probably about five to six hours of paperwork for something small like a, a theft from a store. Wow. Right? So, so it is a lot. And to tie back into the courses and stuff, had I been paying more attention in college, those college writing courses would have been, would have been something to keep an eye on. Because right. um, it is essentially like writing an essay. You are writing an essay to the courts as a professional legal document saying this person has done something bad, here's the evidence we've gathered, and here's how I'm articulating that this is the offense that we should be going with. Do the RCMP and the police officers do the exact same paperwork? Does is the style the exact same? It's similar. Yeah, I mean, writing styles differ between um, which supervisor you have. Okay. Right. But people write things just a little bit differently. I'm going to write an essay a little bit differently than you will. Right. And that's based on my who I've had to teach me how to write essays. That's 
dependent on the courses I've taken or um, the books I read and the reference materials I look at and how I shape my own writing style. But the fundamentals are always still there, right? You have to articulate what you were there for, what you were investigating, and what you did to investigate that offense and overall what the outcome was. Um, and, and that is tried and true for RCMP as it is for any municipal police force. What if you make a pretty big mistake in your writing and hand it in? Like you reread it, but you missed the mistake and you hand it in. What's, what, would, what would that look like? That would look like a very fast phone call to my supervisors being like, hey, I have messed up. I messed up, followed by a phone call to Crown Council being, hey, I messed up, followed by a long list of, I have made a mistake. I am owning my mistake. Everyone, please be aware of my mistake. Um, and usually people give you leeway. People make mistakes all the time. Right. It's not a bad thing to make a mistake. It's what you do after that characterizes you as a person. Are you the person who's going to be able to stand there and say, yes, today I made a mistake? And usually what you'll find is there's an army of people behind you being like, okay, yeah, you made a mistake. You, you Clearly you aren't caffeinated enough today. Let's go fix it and we'll go fix it together. How does this shift look like? Do you start off with paperwork usually? Do you start off on the road and then you come back to paperwork? So I'm, I'm a canine handler, right? I'm with the Lower Mainland Police Dog Services. So my shift usually starts off by me signing on and looking to see what's going on in every jurisdiction I'm responsible for. Um, so for okay. example, sometimes I'm responsible for providing canine coverage for uh, New West, Burnaby, North Van, West Van. So I'm going to look at all of the calls that those officers are attending or are waiting to be attended for and see what they have going on and see if anyone might need my help. Then I'm going to go take my dog out for a quick bathroom break. I'm going to check it back and see what's going on again. And if I have time for a bit of paper, I'll do it then. Um, but if not, usually I'll wait until the shift settles before I really go and do paper. And for us, we do, we do 10 hour shifts, four days on, four days off. Um, so there, there is time to find paper right. in those shifts. Um, but really at the end of the day, I'm trying to do that balancing act where I'm getting my paper completed, but I'm still providing operational, operational support sorry, to the um, jurisdictions that I'm responsible for. Occasionally police officers see unfor unforgettable things at crime scenes. Is there one or two that you've experienced that you'd be willing to share with us? Um, yes, I'll try and keep them light just for your audience here. I mean, at the end of the day, police officers see the worst in society. We really right. do. We see homicides. We see um, collisions where people have died. We are there when someone's passed away, whether it be by natural causes or something else. Um, and that just scratches the surface of what we see. Um, we also see human trafficking. Um, we see and investigate child predators. Um, and I think the ones that have caused me the most trauma and the most stress in my career um, was when I was in serious crimes and I was investigating offenses related to children. So for us, what that looks like is we work really closely with BC ICE. So that's the BC Integrated Child Exploitation Unit. Mm -hmm. um, they get notified of child exploitation materials where children are being sexually exploited. They find out what city that's happening in, and then they give us that paperwork, and now we have to follow up with that. 
Um, it's not something that really gets talked about in society because it is, it is something that no one wants to hear about. Right. No one wants right. to hear that children are being sexually assaulted. And it, as a police officer, it guts me to the core that those type of offenses don't get the spotlight that they deserve. Um, so in my job, I've had to investigate those offenses, and those by far are what have done the most psychological damage to me in my career. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, uh, could we go back to your training again? Of course. Um, do you guys at all study the behavior of criminals and the mind of, of some very well-known serial killers or whatnot? Do you study those minds and try to uh, find patterns in them so you could catch someone easily or if that makes sense? <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so as far as establishing like MOs, um, usually uh, there, I'm going to answer your question in two parts there. Okay, sure. Um, so at a general duty level, we don't. Um, usually I would say 20% or 80% of the crime is created by 20% of the population. Mm-hmm. So I, I really do love the 80-20 theory. Um, and it's something I've studied for a while. Um, so the, the 20% of the people who commit 80% of the crime, usually you'll find them doing the same thing, where the, the one guy or girl in the community that likes to steal cars, usually you'll find them stealing the same car because they have success, and you'll find them stealing the same cars at the same time, right? So in that manner, we don't necessarily do this, like, big profile, but we know reasonably enough based on watching a person and dealing with them enough times that you know what their MO is, you know what they're going to get up to. Um, as far as what you were talking about, where it's more along the lines of serial killers or um, I'm not even sure that we really use serial killers as a term in Canada, but people who commit multiple homicides, um, we have a behavioral science group at the federal level. Um, So we have police officers who are specifically trained in behavioral sciences that do exactly what you just listed, where they study the MOs of people who commit violent crimes um, and determine what their behavior is, what their mindset is. They look into their background to see how they were shaped in their upbringing and what has made them get to this point. Um, and those, those officers, I commend them because they are so smart and intelligent. They take courses up here in Canada. They go down and work with the FBI and take courses down there. Um, and they're, they're really an amazing group of people. Um, I've actually had the privilege to work with them a couple times, and my mind was just blown. Wow. Who influenced you to become a police officer? Oh, geez. Um... I think more of the situations that I was put into growing up influenced me. I always wanted to be a police officer when I was a kid. Um, from a very young age, I saw the worst in humanity from the eyes of a child. And when I got older, I was really angry about it and decided that I wanted to make sure that the way I felt as a kid, um, never, no one ever felt that way if I could help it. Um, and I had some amazing people growing up um, who took a step back and said, okay, it's policing is not a safe profession, but if that's what you want to do, we will support you. Um, and my, my parents were right there behind me being like, okay, if that's what you want to do, you fill your boots, but make sure you're safe and 
off you go. And then, right. the t- again, the teachers I had really opened my eyes up to what the world actually is. Um, as teenagers, it's very easy to be stuck in your world with what you're facing. Um, like, oh, today I'm having really bad acne. It's going to be the end of the world. It's going to ruin my school yearbook photos. Right. Or, oh, grad is a couple months away and I don't have the perfect dress yet and I don't have the shoes. Meanwhile, you have war in different countries. You have famine. You have all of these other ex- existential crises that people are going through that are ten times worse than anything I will ever experience in my life. Um and then taking a step back and realizing that Canada has its own problems, mm-hmm. right? We are not free without problem. And at the end of the day, there have to be people who volunteer and sign up and say, hey, yeah, I'm willing to help protect society the best I can. That way, these teenage girls like myself can worry about what shoes we're wearing to prom. And that, that was something that I always truly felt obligated to do. Um, I felt obligated to make sure that when something was going on with society, I was going to be able to be there and participate and make sure that people could go home safely at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, now schools seem much more lenient in the pressure on students and the marks that they give to the students. What Do you think this is beneficial for their future or not? And what do you think about this? I think sometimes that we sell our kids short. Um, I think people need goals in their life. And goals start when you're in school, when you have those grades. They say, hey, if you, the bare minimum that you need to pass is 50%. And to be an excellent, or to be a great, you need to hit that 70%. And to be excellent, you need to be over 80. And truly, life is about goals. Life is having goals. When you reach one goal, you start looking for the next. And what happens in schools is that grades are the first intro into that. That's the first experience young adults have at reaching and obtaining goals. So when you take away those goals, what what do you have to intro young people into what life is like? If that makes sense. Right. If you if you have nothing to see in front of you that's tangible to say, hey, I've reached, I've worked so hard for this 70% and I got there. That was obtainable for me. And then you start looking at that 80%. And it's like, okay, well, how do we get there? How much more effort am I going to have to put to get there? Mm-hmm. And you start reaching towards that goal. That's the same thing when you get out into the real world. You start working hard and you start putting money away for a car. You get that car. Oh, my gosh. What's the next step? oh, now I want to start looking to a place to live. You get enough money set aside. You work really hard. You have a nice place. You're happy to show it to your friends. You've worked hard for that. Now you want to start looking at maybe a bigger place. Or you start looking at the relationships in your life. right? It's, I think that's, as far as grades go, it's really that first step at achieving what's next. What courses do you think high school in particular is missing? What courses would you want to see students learn at their at a high school age? I, I was actually agreeing with quite a few people that you've interviewed before, where I really do think something on finances um, is really what we are missing in school. Um, and I don't think having it part of like a math curriculum is mm-hmm. good because I really struggled with math when I was in high school, so I probably wouldn't have enjoyed that part. 
in if it were in a math class, but lifestyles and finances is something I would have really benefited from. I was one of those stupid kids that when I turned 18, I got a credit card and totally maxed it out. And then years later, when I was trying to get into the RCMP, they're like, hey man, you've got like a couple thousand dollars in debt here. You need to square that away before we're gonna take you. And I was like, what? It didn't just magically disappear when I chopped up the card? So like some course, having you understand finances and really understanding what it looks like to budget for something. Like how much money can you actually live off of as a young person when you're still living at home or on your own? How much do you need to put away? What are finances look like? What's a tax-free savings account? What are RRSPs? Like that course I think would be really valuable at a high school setting. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were to go back in time, was there something you did that you regretted? Or that you now regret? Oh, geez. Every day of my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Stupid moments. That credit card is one. That stood out to me for a while. Um, no, I, I think I wish I would have maybe balanced my time management a little bit more and mm -hmm. tried a bit harder in school. I tried hard for what I had. Um, I worked really hard in my jobs, but maybe focusing some of that energy back into my schooling. Um, would have set me up just a little bit better for what I'd be placed into in the RCMP. Again, writing those reports to Crown Council, we write them all the time. So you, you blow it off as just another report that you have to write. But at the end of the day, it's a legal document, right? And that deserves making sure that you have good grammar, making sure that you don't need to rely on spell check because it always floats me wrong, um, things like that. And you learn that in school. So my, my biggest regret um, is maybe just not channeling some of the energy that I put into my volunteer work and to my jobs um, and channeling that back into my schooling a bit. Have you heard of ChatGPT? No, I haven't. No. So it's, okay. Because I had a, okay. I'll, I, I could tell you about it, but it didn't take a bit too long. But I'll, I'll tell you about it. I'll, I'll cut this part out. But um, basically ChatGPT is, is an AI, an artificial intelligence that, I'm surprised you haven't heard about this. It's everywhere now. Basically, what it does was what it does is you write a prompt to this AI. You write whatever whatever you want, and it'll search the entire web in seconds and find you the results that you need. So it's kind of like Google, but instead of showing you two billion results, it's gonna it's gonna numb it all down for you and give you the basic points of this, 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 and this. Wow. So I'll, I was I was gonna ask if um, if 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 you could use that for for your um, write ups for yeah no no <laughs> no. <laughs> no it's not uh, when when we're writing our reports we really have to write it from our own perspective and and I shouldn't even say perspective we have to write it as factually as we can based on what we've seen what we've observed and sometimes what we felt oh I see so by okay. being able to like template in boiler points and stuff like that, you're, we're, we really would be missing a mark. I see. Okay. Yeah. Although that would make my reports go a lot faster, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably, I think Crown Council would look at it and be like, uh, yeah, I've been reading your reports for nine years. This is not how you write. Right. And then before we end off this episode, I'd love to ask you what your favorite book is and what your favorite podcast is. Something that might be beneficial for other students or that helped you. 
Yeah, absolutely. My So my favorite book is Shaking Hands with the Devil by Lieutenant General Romeo Dolores. Okay. Um, it is about the Rwandan genocide and his role in trying to stop that and be a part of that as boots on the ground over in Rwanda. And that was... I read that book first in grade 11, um, and I had a chance to catch him actually speaking at my college. Hmm. Um, and it was, it stunned me into silence for quite a while. Um, it is a very like gut-wrenching, powerful read. Um, and I think for people who, I don't wanna say have the stomach to read something like that, but if you really want your eyes opened about what it is like to be in a position of authority and not be able to do a single thing and still feel responsible for everything. Um, it is an amazing book to read. And, and I think that's something that a lot of police officers can resonate, not necessarily on that that big of a scope, because um, right. that, that incident itself was just mind-blowing. Um, but there's a lot of times where police officers um, and I'll, I'll speak for myself in that respect, where you feel like your hands are tied, where you want to help people. You want, you're there for a reason. You really want to help people. You want to pull people out of these horrible situations. But more often than not, people don't want your help. There are laws that bind you in how much help you can give. Um, it's not your role. That's a role of social services, and they have their own policies that you might not agree with where you feel like you're just totally hamstringed. Um, and and that book still resonates with me to this day. To this day, I'll pull it off my shelf. I'll dive into a couple chapters just to be able to have that moment where it's like, okay, sometimes that little girl, Brittany, has to feel a bit helpless for a while. And right. then I would say I give myself about a, a second of feeling helpless, and it's like, okay, now what are we going to do? Right. Because you, you can feel helpless, you can feel afraid, but you can't live in that fear. You have to pick yourself up, you have to get going. Mm. Um, and I think that resiliency that Lieutenant General, Lieutenant General Romeo Dolores displays and speaks to in his book is just something, something that I think as humans will only see once in a lifetime really. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I strive for every day is just to be, to be more resilient and to let my fear of failure guide me to success. And then is there any podcast? Um, I really like dog training podcasts. Obviously, I'm a canine right, cop, right. so not necessarily <laughs> great for students. Um, but I do, I do listen to a lot of dog podcasts about training, right? I want to make myself and my partner better. Right. And part of that is to listen to what other people have for training. So it's continuing that education in a different setting. So I'm always trying to make sure that we are working on being better and that we have the tools to be able to do that. And sometimes that's listening to other voices and seeing how they do training and seeing what they do. Um, I do also like listening to Joe Rogan's podcast, um, especially when he has people on there talking about anthropology and different mm -hmm. world sites, I think it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, I think the the best thing I, I suppose, because my dog podcasts probably don't apply to students, but find find something that interests you. And, and I think it's tried and true, or if you can find a career that you love, the work is easy. 
So Mm -hmm. if you can find podcasts that help you accomplish your goals or maybe make your life a little bit better, give you insight to who you want to be, that that's the best option or the best resource that you could have. Right. Okay. Well, awesome. Thank you very much. Hopefully some people learned something from this podcast. (laughs) Hopefully. And uh, we'll see. We'll see who's next on. Thank you very much. Thanks.